and welcome to the Law Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the gender and sexuality editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. Today, we're speaking with Tim Wardle, director of the new documentary, Three Identical Strangers, which follows the increasingly crazy story of three identical twins well, identical triplets, who were separated at birth, how they come to find each other, and then how they come to learn the very dark backstory to how they became separated in the first place. I loved talking about this film. I found watching the film to increasingly be a, like, how many more times can my jaw drop on the floor moment. Yeah, that seems accurate. I mean, we should say that the show show contains slight spoilers. We don't really spoil the entire movie, but there are some slight spoilers in there, just as a warning to listeners. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a documentary should have that many spoilers in it or potential twists, but this one this (laughs) really really does, does, um, which also makes it a little bit difficult to introduce. Yeah. I think something that this movie really gets right that's very difficult to do, which is how does one move through a story and reveal things one step at a time mm-hmm. without without giving the entire game away and then without sort of leaving the viewer guessing for too long. Yes. It's a really yeah. fine balance. And this movie does it in a, a spectacularly precise fashion. That is absolutely right, Medea. It has this way of feeling like I counted at least three moments at which I was like, I know what this documentary is. And then suddenly there would be a twist where I was like, whoa, I have no idea what this documentary is. Now it's this other thing. Okay, now I get it. Wait, what? It's a wild ride for viewers in terms of like, oh, these are my expectations. And that's also the beauty, I think, of how Tim structured the documentary itself. Yeah. And the story is an incredible story about these three young men who discover that they're related to each other and they're they're triplets. Mm -hmm. But also... It's a story that somehow manages to pull together massive movements in history, like World War II, Mm -hmm. the Holocaust, the debate between nature versus nurture, Mm -hmm. how people raise their children, class. It's it's really astonishing. (laughs) It's kind of scientific study. Everything. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So it's a it's kind of an astonishing documentary. And so I I mean I think we can wholeheartedly recommend that people watch it. Absolutely. And I heard recently that it's going to be turned into a movie. A, From a, a documentary. Film. Yeah, a scripted film. Yeah. That makes sense, actually. It's, a, it's it an does. incredible story. And we will stop jawing on about it and just get straight to the interview. Let's do it. We're excited to be speaking with director Tim Wardle. Tim is a BAFTA-nominated documentary director whose work has appeared on TV and film. In addition to his documentary work for outlets including CNN Films, Channel 4, and the Sundance Institute, he has also steered development for a number of production companies in the UK. His latest film, the documentary Three Identical Strangers, follows the bizarre and extremely difficult story of three identical twins separated at birth who find one another in 1980s New York. The ensuing tale moves from the giddy ecstasy of the triplets' reunion to the dark story of their separation, asking audiences to grapple with some of the most fundamental questions of human development and scientific ethics. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, so can you just give our listeners a brief synopsis of 
what is happening in the film without revealing too many spoilers, some of which we may get into. Right. We can say outright that this movie is shocking in turns, surprising. Yes. But let's start with the premise. The film follows three identical brothers, triplets, separated at birth and raised by different families, completely unaware that the other boy's existence. They meet completely by coincidence in New York in 1980 at the age of 19, become famous, you know, on the front page of every newspaper pretty much in the world. And the film kind of explores what happens next, but also goes back in time to explore the reasons for their separation and the people who did it and uncovers a number of dark secrets. Tim, what brought you to the story? Someone brought the story into a production company that I was working at. And in that job, I was the head of development. I'm the ideas guy. So, you know, I see hundreds of ideas every week and you get very jaded very quickly and you think Mm. you've seen everything. But you know, this one came in and instantly I realized this was the single best idea I'd ever come across my desk. And it just works on a human level. There's a great human story of these brothers separated and reunited, but it also has these much bigger themes of family, free will, destiny, nature versus nurture. And I was hooked right away. Now, Tim, did you know all of the various turns by the time you saw that pitch in production? Or were there things that you were discovering continually along the way as you produce the documentary? We knew about 50 to 60% of the kind of backstory, but there was a lot that we, we didn't know the third act. And that was a huge issue in the UK, getting funding. People said, how's this going to end? Yeah. You know, and, and and I kept saying, well, it's a documentary. Sometimes in documentaries, you don't know how things are going to end. And my background is really as a kind of observational, verite kind of filmmaker. And I'm used to that. But because the rest of the film is so easily mapped out, because we did know these various twists, it was really um, scary, I guess, to our funders to kind of push ahead with it. You know, one of the other things that just to start at the beginning of the film, because what's so amazing is the kind of ecstasy of them finding one another, these kind of three identical triplets who had been separated at birth. And I'm interested in kind of how the film thinks about both cultural fascination with clones and twins and triplets, right? The kind of uncanny, we're seeing two things that are separate but look the same which seemed to me to be a big part of why they kind of catapulted to media fame appearing on many news shows of the day and then eventually also getting famous enough to have their own restaurant in New York. So is there also some kind of cultural fascination with the very idea of identical twins or triplets? I think absolutely there is stretching back millennia, you know, back to Romulus and Remus. Twins and identicals pop up again and again in in literature, you know, the idea of the doppelganger in some cultures, it's a kind of hairbringer of doom. Lawrence Wright, the journalist who appears in the film, has written a book called Twins and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. Mm. And his book is very much looks at this sort of cultural obsession. And, you know, there are some tribes in the world where twins born are venerated and others where they are killed or one of the twins is killed at birth because they're considered bad luck. Mm. So I think there has long been this fascination. I don't know if it's because there's some kind of deep-seated, unconscious almost realization that they illustrate this kind of nature-nurture, free will, destiny kind of battle that we all kind of face in our lives. And they're the most sort of pure and perfect illustration of it. And certainly throughout science, they've been used and abused repeatedly for experiments. Is that something that you were aware of when you went into the story, the various ways in which 
twins had been subject to study and research? Uh, I was just purely because I studied psychology at university and twins studies are kind of one of the mainstays of kind of psychological research. I mean, it's changing these days. And I certainly was aware of the Nazi experimentation with Mengele at Auschwitz. So but it stretches back, you know, way before then. They've been used to justify all kinds of different things from eugenics to, yeah, sort of classism in Britain, I think in the sort of 18th century. Again, Larry Wright's book is really, really good reading on that. There's also, at least in this first part of the film that we're talking about, which is the happiest part, I think, that when they discover one another, there's all of these things that fascinate me in terms of the expectation that we have from blood relatives, right? That it's like you're going to feel this sudden sense of, you know, quote-unquote actual connection um, with somebody, that there's this cultural fascination with or deep investment in the idea that, well, if I'm related to you by blood, then we share some kind of special connection, which has always actually felt totally nuts to me. Like, I know enough people that people that they are closest with are actually not blood relatives. In fact, they feel they have zero in common with blood relatives. But I'm really interested in how the triplets navigated that type of fantasy. I mean, absolutely, the heart of this film is a kind of meditation on what family is and whether it's about biology and genetics or whether it's not to want to sound too cheesy, but about love ultimately and more about who loves you rather than who you're biologically related to. I think what's fascinating about that early period you described, which is best characterized as kind of joyful. Literally everyone we spoke to used that adjective to describe it, and it was infectious. I think what's fascinating is that the triplets themselves were kind of playing along to a certain extent, I think, and they were playing up their similarities. You know, one of them says, we wanted to be alike. We were falling in love with each other. And sort of references that thing you do when you when anyone starts a relationship with someone and you really like them. You find all the ways in which you're similar and you kind of ignore the ways that you're different. And I think they were sort of complicit in that media portrayal of them. The media and all of us wanted them to be identical, but they wanted to be identical as well. Yeah. So the movie begins with one of the triplets sitting down in front of the camera and just sort of starting to tell the story. And I, while I was watching it, I was like, well, lucky for the director, he's great at telling the story. <laughs> he's very good at it. He also must have done it a lot. But something that I was thinking about in terms of how you had approached this is there was already, as you said, a media narrative there, right? There was something that these at first children, essentially, I mean, they were 19 young men, that there was already cameras that told the story in a particular way, that these young people were used to framing a narrative in a particular way. And that can be really detrimental to somebody who is looking for the truth, right? Because what you don't want is a rehearsed sort of understanding of this particular tale. Were you worried about that? Did you go in sort of being a little wary of the media narrative that had already been built and maybe the way that these people had already narrativized their lives? I was wary of it, but I'd say a central part of the film actually is it is about the nature of storytelling in one respect. You know, in that opening part that you mentioned, the opening 10 minutes, I think about people use the word story about eight times or something like that it comes up again and again and again and i think it's fascinating that the actually the journalist howard schneider who appears in there is a news editor who's the first kind of big newspaper guy to really pick up the story and report it 
he actually teaches it. He teaches journalism today and he uses this as an example to his students of what he calls the kind of unknowability of narrative. He says, in journalism, truth is provisional. You only know what you've got on any one day. Mm. And for him, this story is the ultimate example of a story that everyone thought they knew what it was. And it was a you know, feel-good human interest story. And it changed into something completely different. He's well aware of the kind of flaws they had in kind of reporting it. In terms of my concerns, I guess my biggest concern was that they would be incredibly rehearsed. They have told this story a lot before, but those fears proved surprisingly unfounded, mainly, I think, because they hadn't told it for quite a long time. But also they have this incredible ability to tap back into the emotion of what they were feeling at different points in time. You know, when, when you're directing a film like this, as a documentary maker, you're not just looking for narrative fidelity. That's fine and dandy and you need that. What you're looking for is a kind of emotional truth. And if people aren't prepared to go there or tap back into those feelings they have, then the story is always going to be flat. And these guys and their friends just had this amazing willingness and ability to go back to it and tell it with the emotion that it had at the time. And it really surprised me because I didn't, I was really worried about that. I didn't expect them to be able to tap into those emotions quite as easily as they were. Okay, so then as we move out of this like very sparkly and happy and joyous part, we then kind of find out, and again, we won't reveal too much, but that effectively it wasn't just kismet that they had been separated, right? That in fact, this was highly planned. It was part of an experiment that was housed in conjunction with the adoption agency. The nature of that experiment, we may get into later. But then they have all of these memories. So I'm interested in it from a pacing perspective in terms of how you let the documentary flow, like how you unveiled certain information. Because it does feel like sometimes when they're talking about the memories of researchers who would come to their house and interview them at various, every year, or sometimes I guess multiple times a year, like through various stages of their life, they have these memories like, oh, yeah, and these people kept coming and it always made me upset or I didn't understand why it was going on. Can you talk about how you navigated those moments in terms of pacing the documentary? Sure. I mean, broadly speaking, what I was trying to do was have the audience discover events as they were discovered by the triplets. So you've got a forced perspective, you're with their perspective rather than having a kind of omniscient view which you might have in other films information is being revealed to you as the audience as it was revealed to them in the past and the pacing of it i'm really proud of the editor michael hart is his first feature as well as mine and i think he did a fantastic job just in terms of this kind of seeding information that we now know you know the triplets and their families didn't realize was important at the time seeding it in the early parts of the film and then it starts mm -hmm. to sort of detonate later in the story the triplets when they first met of course the families did compare notes and go we we're all part of this study because they were told that it was a normal study of adopted children none of the adoptive families knew that there were other their, their son had another any siblings at all but i don't think they ever put it all together to be honest i mean as david says in the film we didn't recognize this stuff until it was put in our face until it was in newsprint you know because they were partly because i think they were distracted by the media attention and the spotlight and they were just enjoying being together and he, he, they sort of said you know we we almost didn't care why we'd been separated at first we were just too busy catching up what was your relationship with these triplets? What was it, it, was, was it like to work with them? It was, at times, very difficult. It took about four years in development, winning their trust, getting them on side. And even during production, I sometimes wasn't sure if they were going to pull out. We definitely had moments where things felt like they were going to fall apart. On the other hand, 
as I've said before, they were incredibly open and honest with me. And when they did sit down for interview, they gave everything, which is all you can ask as a documentary director. And over the course of making the film, I came to realize just how badly they've been let down by various people in their lives and why it's actually completely normal for them to be very suspicious of the media and anyone, to be honest, promising Mm. they're going to do something for them. So the really surprising thing at the end of the film, when I showed them it, I showed them it separately and both of them had the same reaction. They liked the film, which was fantastic, but also there was this really strong emotional reaction which was like you did what you said you were going to do. And and I kind of realized they haven't had that very often in their lives. I think a lot of people have let them down. So it was that was fascinating to see. And I ended up today, I mean, I consider them and their families really close friends now, and I think we'll be in touch for the rest of our lives. Were you worried about betraying them in that sense? At the heart of the film, there's a kind of ethical question. There's an ethical mm. betrayal probably that takes place. And the relationship between the people in the film who separated the brothers and the relationship between a filmmaker and their subjects there's kind of a parallel there i mean you have a huge responsibility when you sit down with a camera and put it on people they will tell you pretty much anything and there's a huge responsibility there and we had to constantly check ourselves myself and the producer you know we sometimes we'd leave the interviews and we'd be like high-fiving like wow what an amazing story this is incredible and then we we'd sort of get in the car and we'd sort of slowly kind of there'd be a bit of a come down and we go, actually, this isn't just a crazy story. This is these guys' lives, you know, and this has really traumatized them. So I think we're really cognizant throughout the process that just that we had to be aware of the power we had and that we would use it ethically as filmmakers. You are listening to the LAR Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers, We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. Hi, we're excited to have LARB's economics and finance editor, Michelle Chihara, who I always enjoy seeing, but I rarely ever get to see because of the difference in our beats. But we have her in the studio today give us this week's book recommendation. So, Michelle. What book are you recommending? So I've been tearing through everything that Claire Massid has written. And I'd like to recommend The Woman Upstairs, which is the one that I read most recently. Okay. And it's a novel about a friendship between two women, one of whom is an artist and one of whom is, well, they're both artists actually, but one of whom is more successful and one of whom is teaching elementary school. Oh, okay. it's, it's really profound and... I read it in a heartbeat. I <laughs> tore through it. Um, and I've, I've kind of done that with a bunch of her novels. I'm not, this is not a recommendation about theory of late capitalism. And, and <laughs> it <laughs> I could be, who knows? Too. We don't know what um, your reading of the novel is, but sure. <laughs> but, um, well, there's always class in literature. And in fact, if you read The Emperor's Children, which I think is her better, it's a better known okay. novel. More people have heard of it. Have you heard of that one? The I, Emperor's you know, Children? I'm familiar in passing with Claire Massoud's work, but I have not actually read anything by her. But it's always, it's like one of those perennially like on my list. Well, one of the reasons I really like her work is that she's just an incredibly keen observer of race and class as they permeate through daily life. Okay. But even though these are novels about intimate lives, usually about women's lives, there's something page-turning about them. Mm, Um, Okay. You can really get lost in them combined with that really keen observation. So, All right, that sounds great. So tell us one more time, what is the title and the author? The title is The Woman Upstairs, and the author is Claire Missoud. 
All right. Thanks so much, Michelle, for joining us. Thanks. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers. As you said, Lawrence Wright, who's a, a journalist for The New Yorker and who wrote a book on twins, there's a few scenes in the movie where the camera is just with him as he's driving around and just speaking a little bit about this particular case. And it's funny to watch because he will say, well, this is why the story is so tantalizing. This is why I was so intrigued, right? And that keeps bumping up against footage of these grown men saying, we are not lab rats. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it, it's really interesting to see the, the layers of complicity and storytelling and who is involved I, I, look, in what. I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, and that is a kind of balance and a dilemma right at the heart of the film. And a few people have asked me about it. I think the reason that I feel really comfortable with it is because I know the brothers so well, having spent the last five years with them. And I know that they know their story is great and they think it's an entertaining story as well as well as been a tragic one and, and everything else mm. so when they wanted it done right they wanted the highs and the the excitement and the kind of wow factor of their story told mm-hmm. um as well as the kind of you know the, the stuff that had to be more sensitively handled so i kind of felt comfortable about that because i, I always knew that they'd approve of that and when they saw it they they did one thing that I want to try to draw a line between is that there's the kind of journalist or documentary ethics of like, I have a compelling story, but how do I also treat the subjects in their full humanity, which I think you do very well. Um, on the other side of that line is I think the more kind of scientific or research ethics um, that are at the heart of this film. And they, I was particularly struck by even before it the the darkness gets even darker early on maybe about midway through the movie where you interview and I am forgetting her name but the uh, the German the assistant researcher yes Natasha yeah yeah so when Natasha is saying you know look like we really didn't at the time think about any of the ethical implications of this study, of basically studying three triplets and how they developed. We'll just leave it at that. Do you buy that in any way? Or are we really looking across the chasm of history and we just can't recreate what that ethical moment was like? Well, I think the first thing that's really important to say is Natasha herself was not part of the study. She was there when it was going on, but she wasn't actually actively involved in it. Mm. But I do think, look, I think historical context is important. I, I, I studied the, you know, psychology of the the 50s and 60s, where this period where psychology is trying to establish itself as a legitimate science. And there are all kinds of experiments going on, like the Milgram obedience experiment, right, uh, right. and later the Stanford prison experiment, which but by today's standards, you would never, ever get past an ethics committee of a psych- in a psychology department anywhere in the world, I don't think. But you know, Lawrence Wright said to me, it's kind of like the wild west of psychology. And it kind of was. And there were these people pushing the envelope of what is possible and when that happens you always get ethical boundaries crossed i think so i I do think that's that's important i also think for me i'm I'm not trying to make a film about kind of goodies and baddies and black and white and good and evil Mm. i'm much more interested in kind of 
the grey areas of human behaviour. Lawrence Wright has this phrase, noble cause corruption, which he uses to explain, you know, why good people sometimes do bad things. And I think, you know, that that's a fascinating subject area to explore. I don't think the people who are running this experiment were in any way bad people. Peter Neubauer, the, the main scientist, was the founding father of child psychiatry in America and did a huge amount for young people in the, in America. And, and again, Natasha, the reason we show her at the start of her scene with all these liberal icons like the Obamas and all these people she's met is to kind of show these aren't kind of these people who are working at this place weren't evil Nazi type people. But it's, you know, people, opinions are divided. When I, when I, I, I say this in the in Q&As, the, the brothers are like, no, they were wrong. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They're bad people. And, and I have to respect that because that is, that is their lived experience. I'm less, I'd, let, I'd be less um, black and white about it. One of the things that makes it historically murky, I think, and that sort of hangs above the, the film is uh, and and some some of the people that you interviewed do bring this up explicitly, but it's the, it's the Holocaust, right? And as you said, like these, in fact, were Peter Neubauer escaped the Nazis? Mm-hmm. He was a refugee. He was, and all of the people involved in this particular event were Jewish. And it was a Jewish orphan, and orphanage. And it was a, a Jewish right adoption agency, a yeah, Jewish adoption uh, foundation that is now sort of keeping the the records, right? How did you manage that? I mean, that is that is very tricky territory to manage, right? Where it is, it is, yeah, it is. You're you're absolutely right, and and um, I'm not Jewish myself, but I, my wife is Jewish, and she finds watching the film unbelievably difficult yeah. because mm-hmm. of the legacy of the Holocaust and the, and this sort of. She says to me, Jewish people don't do this kind of thing to other Jewish people, especially because of the Holocaust and because of Mengele and all the the other. You know, historical injustices Jewish people have have suffered. I, I suppose, from my point of view, I wanted to acknowledge it. I thought that there is a central irony, which is that David's family and Neubauer's family both fled Austria because of the Holocaust, and they end up on either side of this experiment. Right. And it's important to acknowledge that. At the same time, I wanted it to be a universal story uh, because I think I'm not I'm not personally convinced that the the fact that the, all the main people involved on, on all sides were Jewish is, is particularly relevant. I think it's an interesting footnote and it makes for many people the ethics of what happened far worse. For me, it, it isn't a, you know, some people have suggested to me, well, maybe somehow unconsciously the, the, the um, traumas of the Holocaust were playing out in this experiment. I, that may be true. That wasn't, that hasn't been my mm. reading of it. I very much see it as a universal story about family and, destiny and love and those kind of things but uh, you know it was important to acknowledge that that context exists i also um in a similar kind of ethical terrain but uh, perhaps a little bit broader is how did your thinking change if it changed at all over the course of making this movie about the rights of adoptive parents and adopted children to know the conditions of their adoption their backstory who their biological parents are, because that also is a very, very tricky thing. Um, so kind of how did you think about that before the film? Did the film in any ways change your perspective on that? I, I, I didn't think, I hadn't thought about it that much before the film. I guess making the film, it's just made me feel transparency is always going to be a good thing. You know, being transparent with adoptive families and and the children themselves just seems like the best policy if you aren't you're storing up all kinds of issues later on 
you know, the reason that Louise Wise Services, the adoption agency, closed down, by my understanding, in the mid-90s is not because of this experiment. It's because they were routinely taking children from mothers who had serious psychiatric issues in, in psychiatric hospitals in many cases and then adopting them to um, middle-class families and not telling them that, about the psychiatric background. So they and they would they would make up stories about the mothers and say you know she's a high functioning high achieving college graduate who speaks five languages and plays the piano which was all true but what they didn't say is she's been in and out of psychiatric institutions her whole life and in some cases has been has been lobotomized and so the kid, the teenagers would then develop when the children would grow up develop psych, psychological issues when they were teenagers and the parents hadn't had any information to help support them through that and as a result when they did get the information about these the birth parents they would then sue the adoption agency there's a very interesting moment at the end of the film and where you're speaking with the father of one of the triplets. And he, he says something about, and just thought of this when you mentioned transparency being sort of the, the best possible policy, I guess, is that he, he says, well, we didn't talk about much. We protected each other. And yeah, that was really... I, I, sorry, go ahead. I'm so, I'm so glad you picked up on that line. I mean, for me, that's the most heartbreaking line in the entire film. You know, he says, we were a nice family. We didn't, we, didn't ta- we didn't talk about our problems much. We protected each other. It was a nice family. Yeah. And it I was really important. We, we, we were trying to cut things down and everything. And that was a line I really fought for because I think it gives you an insight into this guy. He's not a bad guy. He's just from a different generation. This is how he believes families, are be- you know, operate best. And it was just unfortunate that his son that he adopted had a very different personality and different outlook and and way of being than than his more militaristic kind of way of way of the family unit being together and it's kind of it's kind of heartbreaking because he he thinks he's doing the right thing but he's actually not not really probably for the kid he had but he doesn't know it you know and it's that's it's so painful at the end he says you know maybe i didn't teach him something maybe i didn't teach him you know and it's um yeah it's heartbreaking yeah, that I I agree with you. I think that's, and I'm glad you kept that line because that that was really when the cruelty of the story I think hits, because it's the it's precisely this understanding of silence as a form of protection, and and that seems legitimate in some ways, right? That we do protect our 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 loved ones from the pain that is in the world, right? And we we try to keep that up as long as possible, and yet somehow in this particular scenario it's exactly the opposite right that that silence was not at all protective yeah yeah no absolutely it was it, it was in in that particular case it was the wrong thing to do and, and and maybe in some families it's the right thing to do and that's i guess the, the the terrible thing about being a parent you never quite know what's right and what's not yeah and in some ways it seemed to also reflect that the and in, in the beginning there's also a clip of maybe the woman who ran louise the agency, um, yeah, and she says, "Well, we tell the we tell the family as much as is reasonable, right? Yeah, um, as much as they need to know, kind of thing, right?" And so she she sort it it it's a similar kind of philosophy, right, about silence, where oh well, it's protective. We tell them as much as they need to know about the the parent that 
has given birth to their child. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, if, if you watch that video clip, as I have many times, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of tells she's she's doing that that that, that people think of traditionally as as signifying lying like she's touching her nose and she's kind of you know won't won't make eye contact and stuff it's really fascinating but yeah I mean that was their that was their line and they they stuck to it and you know just as we kind of like wind up here I'm wondering what was the most difficult part of producing this movie for you I think it was twofold. One was one was keeping the the brothers happy and on side and 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 getting them to take part in the first place. The second was dealing with these organisations that were connected to the study, in particular the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services, who would only deal with us via a crisis management PR firm mm. uh, and would only deal with the brothers via a um, medical malpractice attorney. That had to be gutting, uh, not only for you but also for them. That it's like this is a thing very much about my life, and you're just handing me off to like a person that will just treat me like some kind of liability subject. I mean, I think it's the way that this this organisation has, has has operated the whole way through this. They've never taken ownership of their involvement with with this case, um, mm. and I think they just kept on hoping it would kind of go away. And you know, the the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services, from what little I know, they they do a huge amount of good in New York. They get three hundred million a year as um, from government to run um, sort of social services um, uh, for, for for people in New York, and this just one thing from the past they've just handled incredibly badly over the years, and it's continued throughout um, the making of the film, and also because we knew that previous attempts to to tell this story had been shut down repeatedly. I don't know who by, well, we do know originally by Louise Wise and connections there, right. but later on, we don't know. We know of three attempts by major US networks to tell the story that, that got shut down. So it made for quite a paranoid atmosphere making the film because we were constantly convinced someone was going to shut us down or, or someone was going to, um, yeah, we were going to be sued or something like that. Mm. And And what do you want audiences to take from the film? Because I know a lot of people are going to walk out of the theater or, you know, um, however they end up seeing it, feeling kind of shell-shocked. <laughs> you know, like, what? on the one hand, what did I just see? How do I think about these things? So, kind of, how, what do you want audiences to, to do? Well, do is probably too active, but, like, how do you want audiences to encounter the film? I just want people to... Talk, have talk. I want it to provoke discussion, and I want it to get people talking about the big themes that are discussed in the film: free will, destiny, nature versus nurture, um, the nature of family. Um, and if I can just do that, and there's a conversation that starts after the film finishes, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah, I mean, I I, I certainly can testify to um, a job very well done yeah. in that in that case. Thank you so much, Tim, for joining us. No problem at all. Lovely to talk to you. And congratulations on the on this excellent yeah, documentary. It is really great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. We've been speaking with Tim Wardle, director of Three Identical Strangers. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. 
Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Thank you.